you can offer many clinical decision support tools, apps, devices, and all this stuff that's meant to improve care. And theoretically it can, but if someone just does not have cognitive space to look at another piece of information or to open another app, it won't get used. And if there's no adoption, there's not gonna be any impact. Welcome to the Physician Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland, and I'm a licensed pharmacist and fourth-year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. As this podcast has grown, we've had the tremendous opportunity to broaden our scope and explore other non-traditional healthcare careers. Turn in to hear from our non-traditional experts serving at the frontier of medicine, technology, and innovation. In this episode, we are privileged to sit down with Dr. Kaylee Ewan, a trailblazer in the field of healthcare technology. Dr. Ewan's credentials speak volumes about her commitment to excellence and her relentless drive to incorporate informatics into medical practice. Having graduated from the prestigious Keck School of Medicine at USC in 2019, Dr. Ewan opted for a non-traditional professional career. Instead of pursuing residency, she took on a variety of different roles related to product management, advancement of system interoperability, and healthcare public policy through various startup ventures. She also obtained a graduate certificate in biomedical informatics from Stanford University. She has experience as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow, where she worked directly with the Veterans Affairs to build out a better EMR experience, improving clinical practice on a national scale. She also played a pivotal role at Accolade Incorporated by serving as the Director of Strategic Business Planning from 2021 to 2022, and later as the Director of Clinical Product Management from 2022 to 2023. Driven by her passion for catalyzing change, Dr. Ewan embarked on a new venture, founding AltMD this year. AltMD is dedicated to empowering clinical trainees to pursue careers in health and technology, fostering a new generation of innovators. She continues to push the boundaries of what's possible, leveraging data and technology to enhance the delivery of care to our nation's veterans. Join us as we delve into Dr. Kaylee Ewan's journey, exploring the challenges she's overcome, the lessons she's learned, and the vision that propels her forward in shaping the future of healthcare today. All righty. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ewan. Happy to have you today. Hi, Nathan. Happy to be here. Excellent. And I think we have a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about today. And let's kick things off with the beginning here. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what initially led you to pursue medicine? Sure. So uh, pursuing medicine was something always on my radar, given that I come from a family of two doctors. Both of my parents are actually dermatologists. Um, and there are a number of other doctors in my family, aunts, uncles, and and so forth. So it's always something that I thought I might do. Um, and that's, I guess, where I got the idea. <laughs> awesome. So you had some early influence that kind of directed where you were going to go with that. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of knew that you wanted to do medicine, but when did you start to take an interest in like bioinformatics then? Yeah, I would say it was in college that I started to get interested in computer science. Uh, I took a few courses and I was interested thinking about going that way, but I had also come into college thinking that I would go to med school afterward. Um, so actually, after graduating undergrad, I was lucky enough to find a position that combined those two interests uh, and helped me explore both without having to fully commit to either side yet. Oh, that's really cool. What was this position you're talking about during your gap year? Is that right? Mm -hmm. I took two gap years, actually, between undergrad and med school. I was working at the VA Palo Alto healthcare system in a research group 
that was developing clinical decision support applications for the VA's electronic health record. Wow. How, how did you even find this opportunity in the first place? That's like really cool, like kind of gap year experience. A lot of people will just do like one year of research somewhere at some random lab or kind of continue on their, their undergrad exposure. So how did you find this opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I really lucked out. I think I just found it on some job board that was associated with my college. Um, and I, I had no idea about clinical decision support, clinical informatics or anything like that beforehand, but it was vaguely computer science related. So mm -hmm. I decided to go for it. Wow. That's awesome. And so it sounds like it had a pretty formative experience because you had this initial interest and now you have a formal position during your gap year. So mm -hmm. I guess like, what were the major takeaways from that experience for those two years that you were at this particular, uh, you know, job? Yeah, it was completely transformative and it really shaped the whole rest of the trajectory of my career. I would say that what I found the most cool about that experience was that a very small group of developers who were all physicians by background uh, was able to build systems that were changing the decisions of tens of thousands of doctors across multiple VA systems. And I just thought there was something very cool about that scale of the work that they were doing. Wow. I mean, yeah, it really puts it in, into perspective in the sense that you're working on like a macro level where the decisions and the implementations you make impact not just one patient, but thousands and thousands of patients. So I think that's really cool experience that you had. And so additionally, after you had completed this, you still had the goal of going to medical school. So what was it like applying to medical school? Yeah. So I think my experience at VA shaped the way I approached med school. All mm -hmm. of my mentors and supervisors at the VA were actually physicians themselves. So I used them as the model for where I wanted to go with my career. Um, in medical school, I would say that I, I tried to get more involved with digital health just to prepare myself for that future career. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually pretty early on in med school that I started to toy with the idea of not pursuing residency. Wow. And can you just define real quick for our listeners, like what does this like nebulous term like digital health even really mean? Mm. Yeah, you're right. It is very nebulous uh, and it, it's quite broad. I would say that um, the most broad definition is digital health is ways to use computers to uh, assist with delivering care. So it encompasses things like using the electronic health record and applying applications there. So clinical decision support falls into that category. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also patient-facing applications, so things like wearables that continuously monitor certain um, you know, biometric signals and things like that, both to educate the patient and to educate their clinicians, falls into digital health as well. Um, and then now there's kind of a, a whole new world opening up with respect to AI applications, both for patients and physicians. Absolutely. And we're definitely going to get into more of that in a little bit with the podcast. Um, and so you're definitely right. I think it's something that's growing, you know, kind of exponentially at this point. And it's really cool to see like the intersection of medicine and clinical practice. And you're kind of at the frontier of all of that. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. But let's jump back to medical school. And you got involved initially uh, as an M1 at Aikido Labs. Is that correct? So yeah, that's right. What what did you learn from working with this startup company and how did it kind of change your outlook with doing residency? You kind of preface that. Yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, one of my first experiences with a startup. Um, 
And I got to really get some hands-on experience with operating um, a startup of that size, with doing very hands-on work that was actually not clinical at all. It was things like um, managing social media or writing thought leadership pieces. Akita Labs at the time was providing a smart on fire, or actually not smart, just fire-based API. This was back in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, to enable third-party applications to connect with the electronic health record at various hospitals. So um, I learned a lot about interoperability, uh, which means the uh, ability to take an application and have it work the same way, no matter what the underlying data is, what hospital, what EHR it is, which is actually a big problem um, in, in the digital health field. So I learned a lot about that. And um, started to see that there was interesting work to be done that would support clinicians and clinical practice that was not directly clinical. Wow. I mean, I think that's incredible. You kind of got like almost a, a business background to, to some degree with this too, where it, it like almost like an informal masters of a business administration in that sense, where you got this really cool exposure to a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that goes into running a startup company on top yeah. of the very technical side of things too. Is that right? Yeah, I, I would say my experience M1, M2, I didn't probably quite achieve in uh, MBA level <laughs> of, of education, but definitely, um, definitely maybe an undergrad level of, of business acumen. And I certainly was exposed to a lot more of the technical sides of uh, you know, big problems in digital health today. And so after working in Aikido Labs, you were pretty much hooked at this point where you're thinking, I need to explore this opportunity a little bit further. I'm not sure if residency is necessarily the, the best path for me. And so mm -hmm. what did you necessarily do about that? Yeah. So I, as I mentioned earlier, fairly early on in med school was considering not doing residency. Before I fully committed to that decision, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't experiencing some grass is greener syndrome or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to build my skills a bit more to give myself the confidence that I could uh, get a position that was fulfilling for me after med school without doing residency. So what I did was I actually took two years off between third year and fourth year and worked at another startup. Uh, this one was called the Human Diagnosis Project. And um, Actually, that took me to uh, to Washington D.C., where I still am. Wow! So, what what is this human diagnosis project, and how did you kind of come to the decision? Like, obviously, you had an interest of you know going forward with this opportunity, but how did you kind of convince your peers, your faculty, and family like that? Hey, I'm going to step away from medical school. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like a you know, no one does that kind of thing. And so I think it's really cool that you had the courage to to kind of make that initial step. So how did you kind of navigate that that situation? Yeah, well, actually, the initial step away was quite easy, because there were existing frameworks to do it. So hmm. I was framing it as a research year. Um, and I actually got research year funding from my school to do this or pursue this opportunity for the first year. Um, and I was able to do that because uh, in my role, I was involved in some academic research studies. We were partnering with UCSF and I was leading those studies and was able to uh, produce some publication from that, which met the requirements of a research year from my school. So mm -hmm. that initial step away was was pretty easy and people kind of understood, oh, research year, um, though it was it was really another startup experience. Then 
I was loving it so much that I decided to stay out a second year. Uh, that was a little bit uh, more difficult to navigate, but I would say that my school was was very accommodating. I explained what I wanted to do, and um, they, you know, it hadn't necessarily had a lot of experience with people doing something similar, but they were very accommodating in terms of extending my leave of absence. Um, wow, that's that's awesome. So. Were they, was it considered like a formal leave of absence at that point or, and then they were just willing to take you back at that, like afterwards? Yes. Yeah. Okay, but at that so point it was a leave of absence. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And so also like, it's kind of interesting that you bring this up because like, I get a lot of like, you know, pharmacy consultation questions, like are quote unquote, like breaking the news that individuals in the pharmacy community want to switch into medicine. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's often like a palpable tension when you're kind of doing mm -hmm. this. And I think a lot of people like kind of experience this because like general consensus is like a lot of people are uncomfortable with making those switches because of all the unknown, you know, factors that go into that. So how did you mm -hmm. kind of explain that to your peers? Like, Oh, you know, I'm taking another year off and so on. I just said, I'm having the greatest time and I'm, um, you know, this is a thrilling line of work and I don't want to stop. Uh, it's an exciting time for this organization. So I think people were quite supportive in terms of my friends and, uh, and family as well. The school was was also quite supportive, and I'm very lucky um, that they were that way. And you know, speaking about the school itself too, you know, I guess like why do you think there's so little information about like alternative careers in the current medical education system as a whole? That is a good question, um, and I, I think it makes sense that it is that way. I think medical schools are designed to produce practicing physicians, clinicians, and and that that's what they're built for. So. Um, you know, I, I think it makes sense that there isn't a lot of focus on alternative careers, but, you know, these days the lines between clinical practice and technology and other fields are all sort of blurring. And I think the role of a physician is evolving, um, especially given new technologies that are available now that may be able to alleviate some of the work that they had been doing previously. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think now is a good time for educational institutions to kind of reevaluate what their curriculum looks like and how they're preparing their students for the future. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such a great point, too, is like we we don't necessarily look back at all of the, the new changes that are coming. Like a lot of the schools are trying to adapt, but they're not necessarily they're maybe improving the cur curriculum to some degree mm -hmm. and kind of adding new diagnoses and new kind of approaches to clinical practice. But they're almost mm -hmm. leaving out some of these, you know, more, I guess, like obscure kind of pathways that I think a lot of people would benefit from hearing about. Mm -hmm. But um, so again, last question, I guess, related to like the human diagnosis project. It was so good that you ended up going back for a second year. So like, what was, you know, so formative and so exciting about this particular project that you were involved in? Yeah. So uh, the mission of the human diagnosis project was to basically democratize medical expertise, particularly around diagnostic decision-making. So basically make it so that anybody anywhere could access the most specialized knowledge of, of diagnostics because of AI. Um, and this was a long time ago. This was in 2017. So I'm actually not sure. I haven't kept up with the company and what they're doing today. Mm -hmm. um, and technology was also at a different point then than it, than it was now. So um, at the time, 
I was very motivated by that mission and I was very excited to be part of something that I thought was just so much where the puck was going and and could really change the conversation about um, the way that medicine is practiced and um, and all that. Very cool, very cool. And so after you had kind of finished that experience at that point, you then came back to medical school and what was it like kind of transitioning back into the clinical realm when you had been so kind of like hands-on with all of this like technical work? Was it challenging or? Yeah, well, luckily I had done all the hard parts of med school already. <laughs> so I had done all the core rotations. <laughs> I had taken step one and step two. Mm -hmm. uh, so all I had left were electives. Um, so it actually was, was not uh, too difficult of a transition. I, in fact, really tried to soak up those last few clinical experiences because at that point I was 100% sure I was not applying to residency. And these were my last uh, opportunities to really work in a clinical capacity. Wow. That's, that's so cool. And also when I, I came across, while I was looking through your application and your profile, um, you obviously opted to complete a Stanford biomedical informatics certificate. When did this occur and how did you come across this in particular? Yeah, this occurred over time. I started it when I was at the human diagnosis project because mm -hmm. Part of the work we were doing there involved managing biomedical ontologies, which is like a structure for categorizing different medical uh, concepts and how they're related to each other. This was important to the way that um, the organization was planning to um, develop their decision-making system. And I wanted some more formal education in how to do that. Um, I looked up ways to do that, and the Stanford Biomedical Informatics Program is actually um, kind of the, the home base of where the tool, the ontology tool we were using was built, so it was no better place to learn uh, about it than there. And I decided instead of taking one course, why not go for a certificate, beef up my technical skills. Um, so I kind of did one course at a time over the years uh, whenever I had sort of uh, extra bandwidth. Wow. And so you kind of like pieced wise it through and kind of built up your experience like as you needed it, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. super cool. And, you know, obviously informatics is a growing field at this point in time. So for any of our listeners who wanted to get more involved with this particular practice, what actionable steps do you think they could do right now to get involved in the same profession? Yeah, well, it depends on what stage of your career you're in. Um, folks who are in residency are probably aware that there is a new clinical informatics fellowship, um, which I think is one, maybe two, one to two years uh, after your mm -hmm. core residency. That is a great way to get involved if, with hospital-based informatics and a great way to transition onto, say, a CMIO type track. I would say for folks who are in medical school uh, or maybe earlier, there are lots of startup opportunities that you can uh, seek out. And my recommendation there would be to not get discouraged if you don't see something listed on a website as a role or an internship. I would say don't be afraid to just reach out and connect. try to connect with somebody on LinkedIn. Uh, folks with clinical backgrounds are, are pretty likely to respond. So I would say um, don't be afraid to take that step and try to figure out ways you can start to get involved. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously like cold emailing and cold outreach, like it's not mm -hmm. necessarily the most enjoyable process and you'll probably get a lot of no's or a lot of, you know, no one answers you at that point, but all it takes is for that one person to answer and say, Hey, 
I respect what you're doing. I did the same thing when I was in your position. And so I'm going to give you a shot. And all of the, like all those opportunities can open up just off of one, you know, email that you didn't think was going to go anywhere. So I think that's, that's really good advice. And it's funny. It makes me think back to um, episode 27 um, with uh, Dr. Bokobo. And he was sharing on that episode about how he had reached out through the MD plus community and mm -hmm. just a casual email that he sent out to try and help with some kind of workflow in the hospital. And it ended up turning into a venture capital fellowship opportunity wow. where he was there for uh, a couple months and it was really cool. So you never know until you ask, I suppose, is kind of the conclusion yeah. of that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I guess one more thing to add on, there's kind of sure. more formal, um, organizations, associations, if you want to start following the news and understanding the spectrum of informatics uh, field that is out there, American Medical Informatics Association, AMIA, is a good organization to look up and maybe subscribe to. Uh, there's a number of Slack communities, I think, uh, as well there. Perfect. I think that's great advice. And I'll also drop that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Great. And additionally, after you had finished medical school at this point, you had foregone residency so what were kind of the next steps for you? I, I believe you took on this like prestigious White House Presidential Innovation Fellowship at the VA's Office of Chief Technology, um, working in the Chief Technology Officer Suite. So mm -hmm. how did that kind of come to fruition, especially considering you had a previous job working at the VA? I think it's kind of funny how everything came full circle for you. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we can get to this later, but I'm at the VA again now. Um, <laughs> three times. <laughs> yeah, three times. <laughs> Um, so during my fourth year, when I was doing my electives, I had enough spare time to be job searching and, and I was, you know, pursuing that pretty, pretty hardcore during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, I was mostly actually seeking startup roles because that's what I had experience in. And I think it was on AngelList, which is now called WellFound, but AngelList used to be a startup job board. I am fairly certain that is where I saw the posting for the White House Presidential Innovation Fellowship. It was not something I considered or sought out or knew about, but I saw it on a startup job board. Um, nobody else thinks that, that that was a place that this job was posted. I've talked to people in the program. They're like, who did that? I don't know. That is, I'm sure that's where I saw it. Um, and I ended up with two options, the Presidential Innovation Fellowship, which is a program that takes technologists from the private sector and brings them to the government to modernize practices mm -hmm. um, versus a clinical informatics startup opportunity. In the end, I decided to go with the Presidential Innovation Fellowship just because of its uh, potential to expand my horizon, expose me to types of people I wouldn't have met otherwise. Uh, it's not a clinical specific fellowship. In fact, I was the only clinical background person in my cohort. Um, and uh, I'm I'm glad I made that decision. It was definitely the right decision. Absolutely. It, it definitely probably, you probably experienced some growing pains at that point, mm -hmm. considering like you're a little bit out of your element, but because mm -hmm. of that experience, you are much more well-rounded as an individual kind of expanding your clinical experience, but more so into your, into the technical realm as well. And so obviously having worked at the VA for two years, and this is your second time at the VA, what were the major takeaways from this expanded experience as a fellow? Yeah. So this time, uh, rather than being at a local VA, I was at VA central office as part of the office of the chief technology officer. Um, so I had a much greater opportunity to impact VA at scale, 
but I also had many more stakeholders uh, and many more offices to coordinate with in order to get anything done. So that was a little bit of a growing pain um, to begin with. But I think my takeaway was that as long as I had a clear message and a clear value that I was trying to deliver, if I kept talking about it enough, and if I wrote it down on paper and circulated it enough, uh, slowly pieces would fall into place. And mm -hmm. the mission-driven folks at VA would sort of all get on board and do what they could do to help move the machine forward. Wow, that, that's so cool. And so basically this like kind of expanded responsibility and similar to what you were doing at your previous position, but at a much larger scale, mm -hmm. working with a lot different, um, you know, more technical kind of, I guess, uh, interoperability engineers and whatnot. Mm -hmm, so exactly. I think that's really cool. And so after you finished this experience up, you also spent some time at Accolade Incorporated as like a product team lead. Mm -hmm. um, and you specialized in building like tools to basically minimize like documentation, which of course we know is the bane of a lot of healthcare professionals existence at this point in time. So, you know, this kind of also introduces the concept of healthcare burnout. And mm -hmm. obviously, like I mentioned, excessive documentation is not, not super fun and re resulting in a very high rate of burnout in America. So from your perspective at Accolade and your training experience, what do you think we can do to realign ourselves with what is really important, that being patient-centered care? I would say that my experience at Accolade and in any clinical setting has really solidified um, my belief that administrative burden is a gigantic problem. If we were to remove that, um, there would be many, many cascading benefits. Um, and I would say that, you know, one that I think about a lot today, I'm, I'm at the VA again, um, again, working on clinical decision support and also reducing provider burnout, is that you can offer many clinical decision support tools, apps, devices, and all this stuff that's meant to improve care. And theoretically, it can. Uh, but if someone just does not have cognitive space, to look at another piece of information or to open another app or do something like that, um, it won't get used. And if there's no adoption, there's not going to be any impact. So I think by reducing administrative burden with, for example, things like AI medical scribes or automated drafting of secure messages back to patients, I think that can free up a lot of cognitive space for physicians to kind of function at a higher level and take advantage of more advanced technology that they just cannot deal with today. Awesome. And it's kind of funny to think about like how we developed all of these technology, you know, components and building out these EMRs for the purpose of minimizing burnout. And yet we've built this colossal monstrosity that has resulted in the complete opposite of what we were hoping to accomplish. And so mm -hmm. it sounds like we need to kind of it almost grew too fast for us to really make the adoptions that we needed to, to kind of improve the workflows. And it sounds like you're right. Like, I think we need to incorporate more, more AI to ensure that we don't have to do the monotonous documentation every single day. And I think that's really important to you mentioned, like, even if we have some of these tools added in, if we don't have the bandwidth to accomplish it mm -hmm. or to even like look at it, we're not going to get anywhere with it. So I think that's also important. So more so just less is more at this point. Yeah. And I would say, you know, EHRs weren't necessarily uh, designed to reduce burnout. Um, I think a lot of what they do is support billing workflows and documentation requirements also support billing workflows. So for better or for worse, 
that's how the system is functioning today. And if we can automate a lot of that uh, documentation that's required for billing, then that's great. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. And so, you know, let's take things up to the present at this point. Mm -hmm. What are you doing necessarily now at the VA and how is this position that you're holding currently a little bit different than maybe some of your prior experiences? Mm -hmm. So now at the VA, I'm at a new office, also at central office called the office of the chief AI officer. Uh, it is a newly formed office that was mandated by an executive order that was put out by the Biden administration in October. Um, and as part of the office of the chief AI officer, um, I'm responsible for determining priority use cases at VA for AI. Um, and a priority use case is one that we believe will have enough impact um, such that we should support an enterprise offering of it. So they're not wow. the only use cases VA will pursue, but they are the ones that the central office wants to support. Awesome. Awesome. And so also kind of in your spare time too, I hear that you also created your own company, AltMD. Can you tell us what kind of services you hope to offer and what you're hoping to accomplish with this new company? Sure. Uh, so I would say at this point, it's not a company. Uh, it's probably better classified as a volunteer organization with one volunteer, me. Um, <laughs> Uh, but basically the mission of Alt-MD is to empower physician trainees to pursue alternative careers in medicine, whether that be fully non-clinical or clinical plus. Uh, so uh, I've got a couple things brewing, um, but basically this all ties back to sort of my story that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. I think something that's really helped me in my career was the opportunity to experience digital health work hands-on during med school before I had to decide about residency. And I find that a lot of med students who are in similar positions that I was in in med school, you know, interests outside of clinical medicine, uh, have trouble connecting with those opportunities. So what I'm working to do with Alt-MD is to utilize existing uh, elective frameworks at medical schools to provide some of those alternative opportunities. I think that's so interesting, especially since like I just recently stumbled upon like the MD plus community and mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my goodness, if only I had known about this three, four years ago, like I would have been so much more involved. I think it would have just like opened my eyes to a lot more of the opportunities that are available to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you're right, like in the sense that the traditional medical school framework doesn't work for everyone. And we, I think we need to acknowledge that. And it will lead to a more fulfilled clinical base of, you know, mm -hmm. physicians that get through. The ones who end up wanting to take these non-traditional paths are going to be much happier and they won't be, you know, burnt out working in clinical practice. So I think that's going to be a fantastic resource down the line. And I'm really excited to, to see what you're able to produce. Awesome. I'm excited as well. All righty. So we've gotten to the end of our interview at this point, and we're right now about to ask the famous three questions. So this is, these are the same questions we ask every guest who's on the podcast. And so we'll just jump right in. Um, so how do you maintain a work-life balance in the demanding profession that you hold? And what kind of tips do you have to kind of achieve the same balance? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess my answer to this one is not groundbreaking. It's not exciting either, but I actually block off time on my calendar uh, for hobbies and outside of work activities. So um, I go climbing a couple times a week and there is a block on my calendar twice a week that says climbing. So 
um, I think scheduling in those intentional times to do something not work related has been really helpful for me and it's, it's been working. That's awesome. So you're basically reorienting your priorities in the sense that you are putting, you know, the things that are most important to you first and making sure that your calendar, that is always kind of incorporated. And then everything else that needs to get done falls kind of to the wayside and is scheduled around that. And I think that's such an important mindset to have these days. And so building off that too, what kind of recommendations do you have for students or graduates at this point who are interested in pursuing a similar career as your own? Yeah, I would say try to get hands-on experience as early as possible. I think a lot of students I talk to are vaguely interested in other fields, but they don't have a good way to advance or um, kind of get more clarity for themselves about what their interests are and what their next steps should be. So I would say try something, get hands-on with something uh, as early as possible. Perfect. And last but not least, what are your personal professional or business oriented goals that you would like to accomplish in the next five to 10 years? Uh, I would say that five years from now, I picture myself still being at the VA. And I picture that we have a very successful AI uh, governance process, and we have impacted the lives of um, basically every veteran and every VA healthcare provider in a positive way with the AI tools that we've offered. Uh, I would also say that I'd like AltMD to be up and running. Um, I don't know what it would look like five years from now, but this year my goal is to have one cohort of students uh, go through a digital health internship through this program. Fantastic. All righty. Well, we've come to the end of our interview today, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for the support. If you have any additional questions about the medical school journey, non-traditional careers, or entrepreneurship, check out my website at www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, Dr. Ewan, how can our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about you? Uh, feel free to connect with me or message me on LinkedIn, um, and you can put that in the show notes. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I really do appreciate your time today. And I'm looking forward to all the great things that are about to come down the line. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Take care. 